0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 5. Last week, in the fourth installment of the Summary of Deuteronomy, I covered the latter portion of Moses' second address to the Israelite people, but I didn't quite make it through his whole speech. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. I'll begin this episode with his rules regarding marriage and divorce, and work my way through the end of the book which means I'll be covering the remainder of his second speech, the entirety of his third, and everything that came after. And with that, let's get started. Recalling the last episode, I skipped part of Deuteronomy 22, where Moses covers a few rules regarding marriage, owing to that the subject better aligns with chapter 24. So, first that part of 22. And before I start, do know that I'm treading very carefully here as some of the rules are rather intimate. Also note that while some of these rules may seem rather odd or random to us, I'm sure it was another case of where Moses, as the supreme judge of the tribes, had run across all of the issues before. Finally, I'm taking a few liberties with the order in the text and the other parts, too. Moses is constantly switching between several subject matters, and I'm putting it in an order that's a bit more efficient Well, will help me plow through it. And now with that, what did Moses tell the people? Men shouldn't accuse their new wives of having an, um, prior relationship, unless it's true. If he makes the accusation, then her parents have to provide proof to the town elders that the accusation is not true. The proof to be provided is a bit graphic, and if such proof is shown then the accusing husband is to be punished by the elders of the town. He has to pay his wife's father 100 shekels of silver, and he can never divorce her. This is close to 40 ounces. At the current price of silver, this would be about 700 U.S. dollars, and all of the usual caveats apply, especially those about the historic price of silver. Back in the text, if the parents can provide no such proof, then the woman is to be stoned. These punishments seem a bit lopsided. If a man has relations with another man's wife, then the offending man and woman are to be put to death. The same goes for a man who does the same with a woman engaged to be married. But only if this happens in the town where she lives. If it happens in a rural area, then only the man is to be executed. Moses provides a reason for this. In the rural areas, she may have cried out for help, but no one heard it. Finally, if the woman isn't engaged and they are caught in the act, then the man must pay the woman's father 50 shekels and they have to get married. In addition, he can never divorce her. Finally, men can't marry their stepmothers. Moses seems to be codifying nearly everything. He knows he's dying soon and is leaving as little to their discretions as possible. And that's that part of chapter 22. Chapter 24 begins with a bit of a story that leads to a rule. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her, and so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, She then leaves his house and goes off to become another man's wife. Then, suppose the second man dislikes her, writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or the second man who marries her dies. Her first husband, who sent her away, is not permitted to take her again to be his wife. After these few rules, we're back to the miscellaneous ones. A man is exempted from military service during his first year of marriage. The penalty for kidnapping or enslaving an Israelite is death. Be careful to prevent the spread of leprosy. Moses reminds the people that even his sister Miriam was stricken. Grain mills and millstones may not be used as loan collateral. Doing so would be the same as taking a life, probably from starvation. As for other collateral, When you loan something to your neighbor, you shall not go into his house to collect the collateral. You shall wait outside while the person to whom you are making the loan brings the collateral to you. If the person is poor, you shall not sleep in the garment given you as collateral. You shall give the clothing back by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in the cloak and bless you. The same holds true for a widow's clothing. Wages due to the poor Whether they are Israelite or not, are to be paid daily, before sunset, as these people live on a day-to-day basis. Parents cannot be put to death due to the behavior of their children, and children cannot be held responsible for what their parents have done. Each person is accountable for their own behavior. Resident aliens and orphans have a right to justice. If, while bringing in your grain harvest, you forget a bundle or two, leave it behind for those less well-off. When you shake your olive trees while harvesting, those olives that don't easily fall off are to be left for the poor. The same goes for grapes. And that's chapter 24. But not the end of the various laws. There are two left, at least for now. Chapter 25 begins with Moses telling the people that a judge can sentence a wrongdoer to be flogged, but not with more than 40 lashes. The actual number of lashes given should be proportional to the crime. Then the last of the catch-all laws. An ox treading out grain cannot be muzzled. This one was a bit of a head-scratcher until you realized that the muzzle would prevent the ox from eating some of the grain it was working on. The Apostle Paul actually quoted this bit of wisdom in 1 Corinthians 9 when he wrote, It is written in the Law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Or does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was indeed written for our sake. For whoever plows shall plow in hope, and whoever threshes should thresh in hope of a share in the crop. Paul is telling the people that what Moses said about the ox was more symbolic than literal. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses gives the people more rules concerning marriage. If brothers live together and one dies before having a son, the other brother should marry his dead brother's widow. Then, if they have a son, the son should carry on the name of the dead brother. Suppose the living brother doesn't want to marry her. Well, Moses has a very specific outcome in mind. If the man has no desire to marry his brother's widow, Then his brother's widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and speak to him. If he persist, saying, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, Spit in his face and declare, This is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Throughout Israel, his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. I'm guessing this was a culturally specific insult, and quite honestly, it took me several times to say that without laughing. And with that, we're back to the miscellaneous rules and regs. If two men are fighting, and the wife of one grabs the, um, private parts of the other man, her hand is to be cut off. Be honest when weighing things. Essentially, do not have deceptive trade practices. Moses finishes the chapter by telling the people to blot out the name of Amalek. Remember, Amalek was the grandson of Esau, and the nation he founded fought against the Israelites in Exodus 17. This was the battle where Moses and a few of the elders watched from a nearby hillside. When Moses would raise his hands, the Israelites fought well. In Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the Israelites that the Amaleks attacked them on that journey when they were faint and weary, and then killed the stragglers. Chapter 26 has Moses giving the people rules concerning their harvest. Rules that apply after they settle in the promised land. The first fruit of the harvest is to be put in a basket and brought to the temple. He then gives the people the script they are to recite as they hand the basket to the priest, and also what they are to say as the priest puts the basket in front of the altar. A prayer that references their former bondage in Egypt and how they were led from it. After this, they are to celebrate the bountiful harvest. Next, he tells them what to do when they give their harvest tithe every three years. This tenth of their produce is to go to the Levites, the aliens, the orphans, and the widows. They are then to pray by saying, I have removed this sacred portion from the house, and I have given it to the Levites, the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows. In accordance with your entire commandment that you commanded me, I have neither transgressed nor forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while in mourning, I have not removed any of it while I was unclean. I have not offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God, doing just as you commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel, and the ground that you have given us, as you swore to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses wraps up this address by reminding the people of their covenant with God. They are to obey his rules and regulations, and he will continue to bless them, raising them above all other nations, a theme he's been hammering in the past 26 chapters. And that's the end of his second address to the Israelites. Chapter 27 is the beginning of Moses' third sermon to the people. He starts by telling the people what to do on the day they cross the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan. They are to take large stones and cover them with plaster. Onto these, they are to carve the laws Moses has given them. These stones are to be placed at Mount Ebel. At the same place, they are to build a stone altar made from stones untouched by iron tools. Stones that are completely unhewn. From this altar, they are to give burnt offerings and sacrifices. Once this is done, they are to split up. On Mount Gerizim, the tribes of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin are to stand for a blessing. And on Mount Ebel, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Nephtali are to take their places and hear what they shouldn't do a list of curses. Once the tribes have taken their places, the Levites are to pronounce the curses. In the list is a reiteration of several of the recently and historically pronounced rules. Don't make idols. Actually, that's not strong enough. Cursed be anyone who makes an idol or casts an image, anything abhorrent to the Lord, the work of an artisan, and sets it up in secret. All the people shall respond, saying, Amen. The rest of the list takes on a similar form, but for the sake of brevity, I'll just cover the cursed behavior. Don't dishonor your parents. Don't move boundary stones. Don't mislead a blind person on the road. Don't deprive an alien orphan or widow of justice. Don't marry your stepmother or mother-in-law. Don't have a relationship with an animal. Don't marry your full or half-sister. Don't strike down your neighbor in private. Don't take a bribe to shed innocent blood. And above all else, observe and uphold the law. And that's the chapter. Chapter 28 begins with Moses' pronouncement of the opposite of the curses, the blessings. All of these blessings to be provided if they keep God's commandments. They will be blessed in their cities and fields. Their crops and livestock will be blessed. Their fruit baskets and kneading bowls will be blessed. They will be blessed coming and going. Their enemies will be defeated and will flee in seven directions. Those outside of Israel will notice these blessings and will be afraid. And the list goes on. Of course, Moses had to warn them, yet again, about what disobedience will bring. And it's the opposite of everything in the beginning of the chapter. They will be cursed in the cities and fields. Their crops and livestock will be cursed. Their enemies will defeat them. He also adds a few new things. God will afflict them with boils of Egypt, with ulcers, scurvy, and itch, of which they cannot be healed. They will be continually abused and robbed. You should be getting the picture. I'm sure he was hoping they would. There's even a potential bit of foreshadowing where Moses predicts they will be ruled over by foreign lands. But then again, he knew they were a stiff-necked people. In fact, in the New Revised Standard, The curses portion of the chapter was nearly four times longer than the part for the blessings. He knew his time was running out, and he needed to make his point. While it's a bit too long to quote in its entirety, at least for this podcast, do yourself a favor, take a few minutes, and read it. Chapter 29 begins with Moses reminding the people how God has not abandoned them in their 40 years of wandering, how they have defeated King Sihon and Og, how God is proving faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes back further, reminding of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, once again pointing out how, while God is faithful, he punishes those who are against him. The covenant will continue in the future as it has in the past, so the Israelites will be wise to continue to obey. This continues into chapter 30, where Moses tells the people that if they do stray from God, they can return, and God will welcome them back, even after an exile. Cue the ominous music. At that point, God will regather all of the scattered Israelites, and the blessings will once again be bestowed on the people. Moses tells them that they have a choice, with life and prosperity on one hand and death and adversity on the other a reiteration of most of the book. In chapter 31, Moses takes a different tact. He tells the people that he's 120 years old and not as spry as he used to be. And God isn't going to let him cross the Jordan. But don't fear. God will cross the river before they do and destroy their enemies, as he has done in the past. The Israelites, though, will be expected to perform the mop-up operations, and then the land is theirs. Then, after telling them that, Moses charges Joshua, telling him, with all of Israel as a witness, Be strong and bold, for you are the one who will go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their ancestors to give them, and you will put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And with that, The people know that Joshua is Moses' appointed successor. Moses tells the people that the law he has relayed from God is to be read aloud every seven years. And that's what some considered the end of his third speech. Though, he does address them one more time. I'll get to that in a minute. After this, God speaks to Moses and tells him he's going to die soon. He's to get Joshua, and they both are to present themselves at the tent of meeting. When they get to the tent, God appears as a pillar of clouds and tells Moses that after he dies, the people will turn towards foreign gods, and, naturally, this will make God angry. So angry that he will turn away from them. Moses is to teach the people a song to sing when this happens. This will remind them and their descendants of their transgressions. God then tells Joshua, be strong and bold. For you shall bring the Israelites into the land that I promised you. I will be with you. Moses spends a few of his last days writing the laws given to him in a book. He then tells the Levite priest to, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant. At least the New Revised Standard and NIV say beside. The King James says, In the side, which some have interpreted as being the same as inside. Wherever it is, it will be there as a witness against the people when they turn away from God. And, initially, this may sound like Moses is a pessimist. But remember, God had just told him they were going to turn away. Chapter 31 is another chapter that ends at an odd spot. In a section noted in both the New Revised Standard and NIV as The Song of Moses, the last verse reads, Then Moses recited the words of this song, to the very end, in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel, and that's the chapter. 32 begins with the actual song, and it's a summary of everything he has told them in his three speeches. How good and faithful God is, how he has, throughout history, cared for his people, how idols and false gods make him angry and his anger leads to the destruction of those who abandon him. When the people are destitute and powerless, God will reconcile with them. Moses recites the poem or sings the song for all to hear, including Joshua. After this, God tells Moses to climb Mount Nebo so that he can peer across the Jordan and lay eyes on Canaan. It is here, God tells him, that he will die, owing back to the incident at Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen, where he failed to maintain God's holiness among the Israelites. Before he climbs the mountain, in chapter 33, Moses blesses the Israelites one more time, giving each tribe its own separate, different blessing, except for Simeon, since they had merged with the tribe of Judah. Think of this blessing as the opposite of the song found in the previous chapter, A balance, just like the blessings and curses for the two groups of tribes after they crossed the Jordan. Which gets me to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, 34. Moses ascends Nebo, where God shows him the land of Canaan. Right after this, Moses dies. The text tells us what happens next. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows this burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses ended. At this point, we're told a small bit about Joshua. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, because Moses had laid his hands on him, and the Israelites obeyed him doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. The chapter wraps up eulogizing the man who has led them for the past four decades, saying, "...never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land." and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The phrasing of this passage seems to indicate it was written well after the earlier parts of the book. And that's the book of Deuteronomy and the end of the Pentateuch. And a great stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I begin working through the new people, places, and things presented in Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.